Hi, and welcome to episode 101 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Lim. And I'm Peter Olachi. And our special guest today is Dr. Tejumola Olanian, Louise Durham-Mead Professor of English and African Languages and Literature at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His research interests include post-colonial, African, and African diaspora cultural studies, literary and social theory, drama and popular culture, such as music, film, political cartooning, and so on. He has published extensively in these areas, including Arrested Music and Scars of Conquest, Masks of Resistance. A very warm welcome. Thank you, Peter and Peter. I'm really happy to be here. soon going across campus, across the Red Cedar River, to give the keynote address to a conference on explorations in African and Middle Eastern political cartoons. And I should add that this is the third fairly recent podcast we've done on African cartooning. And a bit of good news, our last guest in that vein, uh, Jimga uh, from University of Lagos, received his uh, doctorate. He successfully defended his doctorate uh, on African cartooning last week. News. It is. <laughs> yes. yes. But, um, uh, uh, Prof. Teju, you've written widely on African and African diaspora literature, drama, the music of Fela Kuti. Why cartooning and why political cartoons? Thank you very much. I got to political cartoons and cartooning from African literature. We all know how you know highly political African literature is, or at least you know that's the stereotype. It's a penchant for focusing on macro, you know, issues in society, questions of distribution, marshalling of resources, and so on. So I grew up on African literature, and um, you know, partly because of its uh, origin in anti, you know. Um, uh, colonialism um, and subsequently attacks against uh, post-independence dictators, uh, it was really very political. So uh, that's, that's actually, interestingly, my entrance into political cartoon as um, a similar kind of a focus you know, in a different uh, genre. And of course, humor is, uh, in yes. my opinion, it's a great weapon of the people for resilience, for yeah. survival. Yeah, absolutely. And which is why satire in the literature is a very dominant form. You know, uh, some of the really very evocative uh, political texts, you know, and uh, African literary texts, they're satires. And this is one in the mode of looking at politics that literature shares with, um, you know, uh, political cartoons. I remember your wonderful chapter in, in the edited collection by Paul Landau, mm. where you looked at uh, early Nigerian yes. cartoonists, yes. and and then um, <clears throat> later on you you contributed uh, an equally erudite chapter to a, a book on the great artist and cartoonist mm. Dele Jigede. Uh, yes. But t your keynote today is entitled. Yeah. A riddle so clear to the naked eye, power and the aesthetics of corpulence in African political cartoons. This is an intriguing, intriguing and undoubtedly a weighty topic. <laughs> it is indeed a, a weighty topic. Um, that's uh, one of the you know, chapters in the book I'm finishing up, uh, which is uh, a history of uh, political cartooning across the you know, continent. 
And in this particular chapter, which excerpting for the for the talk, I'm looking at one of the really foremost um, you know aesthetic techniques, you know aesthetic devices of the cartoonists, uh, which is the use of body size, you know, um, as an indicator of this or that, you know, specifically an indicator of wealth. Um, and if it's a uh, scrawny body size, an indicator of poverty and suffering. Um, this is, um, you know, I, what I try, what I, I try to do in that chapter, which I also do today, is to look at the different origins of that device, um, the particular African resonances of it, and to look at um, the international dimensions, you know, uh, because if you look at the history of political cartooning in general, uh, you do see, you know, that technique. You know. So that's uh, that's what uh, uh, I'll be talking about later today. On the other hand, it can be a little bit puzzling because I'm reminded of some famous or infamous dictators like Hitler, even Mobutu, who yeah. were quite diminutive, although I suppose yeah. they, f they feasted well, <laughs> and so there was plenty of room for, for, for growth there. <laughs> how are these uh, images of corpulence also gendered in particular ways, and, and how do gender and politics intersect in, in your yeah. work? Yeah, thanks. The, um, you know, this is uh, one of the uh, many contradictions, you know, um, you know, that the cartoonists face in the use of this particular device. You know, uh, Peter just mentioned one, which is uh, what if the political leader, you know, you want to lampoon, is actually not big. You know, what, what are you going to do? So uh, that's one contradiction. And um, cartoonists, you know, both African and non-African, uh, they find uh, different uh, compromises, you know, to lampooning, you know, either using body size or not using body size. You know, leaders who are actually not, you know, um, who are not uh, that big, Idia Amin or Basanjo and so on, those would be good candidates for the corpulence form. And another contradiction is at the level of, um, you know, agenda, you know, they find it... Um, you know, very difficult to do this successfully, you know, um, largely because corpulence in women actually looks, you know, like uh, something very natural, you know, the image of a pregnant woman. So if you show a woman as corpulent, you know, typically with a bulging stomach, you know, uh, your audience might misread uh, that. So that's one huge problem, you know, um, you know that the cartoonists uh, face, you know, uh, such that in representing corpulent women, you know, they, you know, either go to extremes and making the woman really ugly, top to bottom, uh, rather than the focus on the middle, or go for another form of critique, you know, uh, at all. So it's a very gendered tool. Um, is tailor made for men, you know. Um, you know, this is the typical image of the rich, you know, uh, bulk, middle, you know, um, you know, um, um, men. Uh, so it's not just that, you know, it is a gender technique. Um, this is also cartooning generally, not just in Africa but also globally. Uh, it's a very gendered profession, you know. Um, there are way more men in the profession than, you know, than women, um, which also, you know, leads to the fact that um, the few women practicing the profession, they've not been able 
to decisively affect some of the you know classic you know stock of aesthetic devices because the only way you actually change these devices is to have lots of people uh, reshaping you know devices from a particular point of view. Even some of these uh, women, you know, are they to resort to this device of uh, copy lens in the conventional way because it is more powerful as a proving technique than as a technique that's been critiqued, you know, from a, a gendered point of view. So it's really interesting to bring um, all of this uh, out, and this is the way you know, gender plays, uh, you, know, um, you know, forcefully in, in, into, in, into this uh, device, into thinking about this device. As a historian, I'm, I'm also interested in how corpulence changes over time because it seems to me that, you know, what sometimes is referred to as the belly of authority <laughs> is revered in an earlier period, but today the images even of, of men, and this, is, this applies not just to African men, of course, men in the West and, and men elsewhere, you know, what is revered is not so much maybe the belly of authority, but, you know, the ripped, very fit, yeah, yeah. sort of almost metrosexual male. Yeah, yeah. Is there a change uh, also in this um, aesthetic uh, in West Africa? And uh, is this representative so in the cartoons? Um, unfortunately, no. You know, um, you know the, I'm sure it will get there. And... Um, I talk about this, you know, particularly in relation to, you know, to women, you know, uh, body size and women, because there are, you know, particular African cultures, apart from the, you know, questions of money issue, corpulence and so on, that actually, you know, refer robustness in, in women. And, you know, there are all kinds of uh, fattening farms before marriage and, uh, and, and so on. Uh, but, you know, contemporary young women, you know, are, you know, critiquing that standard and, um, you know, uh, there's way more debate, you know, um, about women today on questions of body size than you find out in the men, you know. Uh, so what we find in America, for instance, or the West generally, you know, uh, what you describe of, um, you know, the feet man with ribs, you know, and uh, you know, uh, with uh, six-pack uh, abs and so on, that's not, you know, African men are not into that yet, you know. Um, and I think part of the reason they're also not into that yet is if you look across the continent, um, generally very conservative cultures, there's uh, a whole lot of privileging of clothing and substantive clothing. Uh, I mean, what is your, the use of your six-pack uh, abs if it can't be seen, <laughs> if they can't be seen? So, um, and the emphasis on the clothing is as rich clothing, you know, uh, rich clothing not just in value but also in size. People might be thin. In fact, many men are thin, and it's actually a matter for regret. And you make up for it in, in <laughs> being well padded up. You know. These issues of size and, and gender also remind me of the of the fine arts traditions in Africa, in yeah. masquerade, yeah. in masks, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. in, for instance, Cameroon and Malawi. Yeah the Gule Wamkulu masks, yeah. but also in, in, in your homeland, yeah. The, yeah. the Yoruba and yeah. the Igbo have this very long satiric tradition, yeah. uh, thinking of Igbo women's songs that yeah. can be used to ridicule politicians. Yeah. Yeah. And so sometimes when we think of cartooning, we see it as only beginning after the Japanese and after the Western mm -hmm. Europeans. Mm -hmm. But what about this longer satirical tradition in Africa? Yeah, I mean, and, um, you know, they, you know, 
they contributed a lot to what we have in the cartoons today. That's part of uh, what I'm studying because they supply the you know foundational cultural assumptions that you know I discovered in my work actually infuse you know uh, this uh, borrowed uh, form you know which you know um, it's, it's, you can date it back to mass you know printed circulation. It came to Africa as part of you know, uh, colonial rule, you know. Um, so, but the foundational assumptions of the culture, which you can find in so many other cultural forms, you know. Uh, today, I will try to give example from the dress patterns and from the music, you know, from instruments, you know, to see, you know, uh, how these uh, ideas have longer trajectory, even though the form in this particular issue we are talking about in the cartoons so the, the form is um, of um, you know more clearly you know um, you know Western origin. Although when you look at visual forms uh, and those masquerades you, you think uh, you talk about, you can actually link them you know much closer to the you know um, you know to the cartoons. Yeah. And not only have you written <clears throat> widely on African cartooning, you've developed the very innovative AfricaCartoons.com yeah. website that represents so many African cartoonists and their work. Can you share with us and with the listeners maybe your motivations for yeah. launching mm. this digital project, what your objectives were, yeah. uh, the successes and maybe the challenges so yeah. far and the yeah. connections it's helped you make? Yes, uh, thanks. When I, you know, started working on, you know, cartoons, you know, I, I mean, first of all, I became interested in, you know, in cartoons towards uh, the end of uh, my high school, and I began clipping and, you know, collecting and so on. But I didn't, you know, study them then. Uh, it was, you know, uh, about two decades later, you know, uh, when I had already left Nigeria, that uh, I thought, oh my God, I would like to study this. And um, I didn't know where to begin in looking for them, you know. So I went to the library, and, uh, you know, uh, the librarians were very helpful. This was at the University of Virginia. Uh, they would get me microfiche, you know, boxes upon boxes. And I would go through, you know, um, each of the rolls and make um, uh, photocopies of the cartoon pages. I got um, research assistants to help me. Uh, and then after a while, it occurred to me that this form will become more important, you know, in the future because many societies are getting democratized. There are more newspapers and, you know, cartooning, you know, becoming more popular than before. And I thought it would be really, really, you know, significant to have a place where people can actually begin, you know, their research and have one sharp overview of what's going on on the continent. And I thought... Um, Constructing a database will be will be that you know I, I started that before you know the explosion of um, you know uh, the current mass media form that actually allows you know the spreading you know um, you know much more easily. But the goal is to provide primary source of information that people can begin with about all the continents. You know it's going to be historical, which is every you know cartoonist who has ever published and uh, samples of their, you know, of their works. And if people want to learn more, uh, they can then do research on their own. So that's, that's the, uh, it's, it's as a, you know, uh, beginning primary resource, you know, uh, you know, for study of uh, African political cartoons. And I also wanted to 
popularize and uh, help promote the cartoonists, you know, um, for that. And I've gotten, you know, emails, um, people thanking me, and cartoonists who weren't there yet asking to be included and sending me samples. So it's it's been really gratifying to you know uh, to to do that. And as to the challenges, of course, you know it's um, you constantly have to think of uh, how you are coding them online uh, to make sure that they will stand the test of time. And um, I can't do it alone. I also have uh, able research assistants and students go in and come out of the project. And you know it's sometimes it's hard to. Um, you know, to get you know people with uh, the you know required skills to to to, to do that. We look forward very much to that exciting book, and I'm sure it will cause a uh, a lot of enjoyment, but also make people stop and think, and also think about taking cartooning seriously. Exactly. There are these, of course, big issues confronting cartoonists today of censorship and self censorship. Is it getting better or worse? Do you think across Africa? It's actually a toss-up, you know. Um, <laughs> it's a toss-up in the sense that um, you still have the conventional stuff, which is that uh, governments are unhappy. They try one way or the other, you know, to make their displeasure heard, you know, uh, including suing, including threatening newspapers about withdrawing advertisements, especially many of those countries, you know, are the, the newspapers, and I'm talking of even private newspapers, they do depend on government advertisement because that's the biggest source, you know, uh, of advertisement, you know, of, of business for them. And there's the issue currently going on now between uh, the distinguished, um, you know, Tanzanian um, you know, slash Kenyan cartoonist Gado, and you know, the paper, the you know, the Daily Nation has been cartooning for a long, uh, you know, time. Um, somehow, you know, the, his contract is not being renewed, and uh, many people have, uh, you know, suspected that this might have to do with some of his uh, cartoons with some people in. in um, in the government, you know, uh, whether from Tanzania or Kenya, expressing displeasure. Uh, but at the same time, um, there has never been a much greater opportunity for cartoonists to broadcast their work outside of official channels. Uh, and that's a really very good thing, and many people are doing that. You know, they are building very portable websites, basically of the free stuff that some websites make available. So that's one way, you know, they have, um, you know, Facebook pages, you know, where they directly, you know, post their, you know, cartoons to. There are list serves. They, can, they too can actually collect emails of friends and, and fans and, you know, actually, you know, disseminate cartoons uh, directly. And many of the papers are online now. You know, it took some of those that were the first to get online, it took them a while to include cartoons in the online versions. You know, generally at the beginning, you find the online version, but the cartoon is not there. Uh, but some of them are in, including the cartoons now. Uh, it's still a problem, you know, getting, you know, uh, once that day is gone, it's very hard to get past copies because yes. these are not properly, you know, uh, archived, archived yeah. you know. Um, so the, this, um, the, the biggest problem, uh, as I see it, is uh, proper remuneration. You know, the, the cartoonists, um, you know, they would have been, even uh, much freer than now if they were to be able to be by themselves without uh, 
uh, especially the significant ones, you know, um, and be able to make work simply by being a syndicated cartoonist. Many of them still need to be employed, uh, and that's an issue. It's a complex issue, though, in my opinion. And we, for instance, we've seen Zapiro in South Africa and Gado in Kenya push the envelope yeah. and suffer, almost suffer the consequences. Yeah. And and you seem to suggest that this is emanating from government, which in many ways is what's apparent to us. But I was reminded when looking at some cartoonist albums yeah. of the councils of state more broadly. Mm. In other words, the connection between politics and economics, mm. political economy. And it was a, a meeting of Ronald Reagan mm. with Rupert Murdoch and uh, introducing the cartoonists. Mm. And Murdoch brings some some cartoonists <laughs> to the New York and writes for his press. And <laughs> it reminds me of the more subtle forms of social control. And here we might see the bifurcation of the drawing of the teeth of the yeah. critical political cartoonist. Yeah. And He's meandering then into more cultural cartooning yeah, and getting yeah. awards. But So what I'm getting at is mm-hmm. it, it's good that the internet is there and cartoonists can use it as a sort of uh, escape hatch. Yeah. But is it really a panacea to still have to rely on big business? That that in many ways is, is the go- sometimes the government and big business are the same people. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the irony is that uh, I actually don't think there's a problem in that. And I totally, you know, uh, understand the issue here, you know, um, especially, you know, the what happens when cartoonists are embraced as institutions. But I, I think there's something built into, you know, into cartooning, which is that it foundationally cannot praise us. You know, uh, it's incapable of praise. There's no matter how much you slither up to a cartoonist, a cartoonist cannot perform his task by praising you. Um, you know, so I... It becomes I, boring and it's no longer funny. <laughs> yeah, it's all boring. <laughs> and, and the cartoonist will not be satisfied and so So I think the question of acceptance in the West, you know, um, I don't think it's serving a domesticating function as uh, some people would argue uh, because that's not the, you know, that's not, you know, the evidence, um, you know, out there. I will actually think that the problem on the other hand is, um, which is on the, in the African context, uh, is uh, too much belief, you know, that uh, a bad drawing of you will have an immediate significant impact, which is why, you know, the governments, you know, run around after seeing one, you know, a bad cartoon. In fact, by that action, uh, they inadvertently make what they are afraid of happen because people pay attention, you know, uh, and they actually look, um, you know, uh, look foolish. So I, I think my position is um, very much uh, counterintuitive on this, but that's because of putting the, the form we're dealing with itself into, into context, you know, is really, really very difficult to domesticate, you know, whether the person is dealing with political cartoons, you know, dealing with um, politicians and political issues, or social ones, you know, with relationships and so on, because essentially cartooning is, um, you know, a kind of simplification through exaggeration. So I would prefer a situation where cartoonists are actually, you know, established and well institutionalized, you know, and uh, accepted. Um, I don't think it's going to curtail the, the significance of the work.
Now, our podcast claims to be about African history, culture, and politics. And one of your current projects listed on your professional website is a cultural biography of the post-colonial African state. Sounds right up our alley. <laughs> what does it involve? Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. So when I finished uh, my first book, which is uh, Scars of Conquest, Masks of Resistance on African, African-American, and Caribbean drama, it occurred to me that uh, it felt too celebratory. You know, uh, essentially the book it's about, you know, uh, anti-colonial literature, you know, the great invention of uh, culturally anchored forms, you know, against, you know, the much earlier aping of a Western tradition. So other than the fact that this is the European languages, you are talking of really very, very inventive uh, formal forms. So I thought that was too much of a success story. And um, I try to, you know, um, look at if, you know, if this story is really, you know, uh, if it speaks so much for the contemporary African situation wholesale, how come, you know, there are still many problems? So I've discovered then that, um, you know, this is just one dimension of a very big issue and that the way to get a good handle on the issue is to talk about the state. You know, uh, and then I realized that, of course, uh, the literature has been talking about the state for so long. At the beginning, when literary critics talk about the politics of African literature, they don't talk about it in terms of the state. They talk about it in terms of this politician, that politician. You know, so it's it's on is in individual ways, corruption and so on, but not as this coming from an institution, the state, which you know you can study that one, which actually has its own history, you know, um, you know, trajectories. So I decided to write um, um, a history of the state in, in, in Africa. So this took me straight squarely into political science and, and history, but that's not what I want to do. Uh, so I decided on a cultural you know, biography, which essentially means a study of selected cultural forms, first as they represent the state, and secondly, as you know, the state imprints its mark on them. So I'm doing it, you know, in a bi-directional way, which is that when you pick a form, you look at the many ways the state shows up in that form. And secondly, you try to think about, uh, you know, how the state made its impact, you know, uh, on that form. And uh, I find out that this is actually what I've been doing without knowing it, because if African literature is political. It's not just that the writers are committed and so on. It's also because the state has imprinted its mark. You know, the state is so significant that, you know, it's putting its foot everywhere. And people, you have to feel it. So it's the same thing in political cartooning. It's the same thing in political music. Even in other areas that people don't think about, you know, uh, like, um, you know, microcredit organizations, people gathering together, bundling together money to help themselves. This is because the system is not working the way it should, so they have to come together and, and help themselves. This is the cultural origin of NGOs, you know, to the extent that they are, you know, taking the place of, you know, where the state should be in the provision of um, you know, amenities. So there are so many chapters in the book, and the irony is that some of the chapters started to become books in themselves. The Fela chapter started out as the political music chapter, you know, which was devoted to a survey of 
political music, militant music on the continent, you know, why people would do that, what's the response of the state. And the section on Fela got bigger and became, uh, you know, um, a book, you know. Uh, the political cartoon book also started as a chapter <laughs> um, political cartoon. There are two other books in the book. One is on the bureaucracy. I'm also studying the bureaucracy, you know. Um, you know. So that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's the origin of that big book. Well, you better stop writing chapters. <laughs> yes. I have too, much, too many books to write. Thank you so very much for talking to Africa, past and present. Well, I'm really very happy, and thanks for the excellent job you are doing here. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at Africa podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. Well,